Tonight's reading from the New Testament comes from Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25, and chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he'd combat compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. This is the word of the Lord. Well, our guest preacher this evening is me. Uh, it's been a while since I've uh, been in the pulpit here. Uh, it r- reminds me of a joke. I can't remember if I told you because I have a small stock, uh, especially of church jokes. Uh, but uh, it- it's a cartoon where there's a pastoral search committee, and they're trying to figure out the package and the benefits they're going to offer this pastor. And they get to vacation and say, well, you know, Four weeks, five weeks, whatever it be, but uh, you know, if if he's a really good preacher, he deserves that time off. And he's not such a good preacher, we deserve that time off. <laughs> so I'll let you decide which one it was uh, for the last couple weeks. Anyway, but I am glad to be able to uh, kick off this new series. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the way you've been with us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the hope that is in you and your risen Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. This evening, I want to kick off a series that will run through Easter on the miracles of Jesus in the book of Matthew. And as you hear that topic, miracles, I imagine there's a couple different responses we have to that. One would be, Miracles are nowhere. They're impossible. They don't happen. If, if you're someone that tends to believe that uh, the universe is closed, that, that it's a matter of motion and material and laws govern things, or even if you're a religious person, more like a deist, and believe that God set a perfect system in motion, so if he interrupted it, it would mean that it wasn't perfect, you're going to tend to have this perspective that miracles are nowhere. They don't really happen. And the Christian faith responds to that by saying, well, God made the universe out of nothing, and he endowed it with things that have natural properties, and they interact in a cause-and-effect way, but he has the freedom to interject himself into that process because he's God. And that the world we find before us isn't impersonal, but rather personal. The second one I would sum up by saying is the view that miracles are everywhere. So they're not nowhere, but they're everywhere. 
couple weeks ago, Minnesota Viking receiver, Stefan Diggs, did you all see this, right? An amazing catch, runs it for a touchdown, and is now dubbed the Minneapolis Miracle. Actually, the football team is going for the trademark of that, or the Minnesota Miracle. Last week, a pilot in California makes an emergency landing on Highway 55. It's called a miracle. A couple weeks ago, Barry Manilow, 74 years old, wrote a song called It's a Miracle. The writer in the article said he gave such a robust performance, it was a miracle. Anything that we can't explain, we'll tend to say it's a miracle. So you have those two poles, but there's one more, and that is that miracles are conditional. That is, they, they're given to those who God really likes a lot or that have a bunch of faith. Those are who miracles belong to. And so it sees miracles primarily as acts of God to make us happy. Acts of God to make us happy or meet us in a place of desperateness. Well, the Bible itself is helpful here if we're going to get a good understanding of what are miracles anyway. Over 50 times in the Gospels, miracles are referred to as signs. Hence the name of the series, Signs of the King. Now, what's a sign? You all know what a sign is. If you're driving along the interstate, you're really hungry, and you see a sign that says McDonald's or Chick-fil-A. When you get off and follow that sign, you expect to find the thing. It's pointing to something. In fact, it's really frustrating. I don't know if it's happened to you, but you get off and you're driving for miles. And I think there's a law, isn't it? Like supposed to be just a mile? Or the worst thing happens, you end up at the mall. It's in a mall. And it's not its own thing. I'm talking from personal experience. From a dear wife who sees a Panera or a Chick-fil-A and says, that's where we're going. Um, anyway, well, miracles take you to the sign. And so you have to ask yourself this question. Then what are the point of Jesus' miracles? What are they pointing to? Well, they're pointing to the miracle man. They're pointing to Jesus the King. That's what they're a sign of. They're spotlighting Him. They're not just raw expressions of power. They're leading you somewhere, leading me somewhere. And so, I want to begin our somewhat short series on miracles by getting a foundation for how we understand these things. That they point to the sun, and for this evening, I would say there's two things that are foundational, if you and I are going to get this, and that is the way that Jesus' miracles point to sonship and point to salvation. They point to sonship and they point to salvation. So let's look at those. First of all, sonship. And by sonship, I mean Jesus place as the unique Son of God. You might say that there are many sons and daughters of God, but there is one unique Son. I don't know if any of you are fans of uh, the Netflix series, The Crown. Anybody but me watching The Crown? Okay, a couple people. A couple people. And one of the most moving episodes in episode, uh, season one was the coronation of Elizabeth II. And it really, they do such a great job. It's regal, it's solemn. And the archbishop 
at one point in the coronation, takes his holy oil and he says, these hands are anointed. And then this breast is anointed. And this forehead is anointed. And then he says, govern in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, some folks are watching on TV, and uh, they realize they don't get to see this. It's shielded. The narrators are mentioning it, but they can't see it. And, they, and someone asked the question, why don't we get to see it? And the response is, because we're mortals. We don't get to see. Well, in chapter 4 of Matthew, we get to see what you might call the public coronation of Jesus Christ as King. It's at his baptism. And God doesn't hide it. He opens up for the whole world. And this is what we hear. And when Jesus was baptized, he immediately went up from the water. I love that. He immediately came up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened up to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, there are a lot of things in Jesus' baptism we can look at. A very significant event, the way he identifies with us. But there are really uh, two things that I think it shows. One is confirmation of his sonship. Confirmation of his identity in God. This is my beloved son. And this was the driving, if you know anything about Jesus, you have to know this. His oil, his energy, his fuel was his relationship with his father. This is what drove him in every place, every stop, including the miracles that he did. We might think, well, they were primarily for the sick person. No, he was primarily driven by his communion with God the Father. They were witnesses of his sonship, who he was. The second thing that we're told is that the Holy Spirit descends upon him. And there you have not just sonship, but kingship, empowerment. He's empowered to the work of teaching. He's empowered to do the work of proclaiming. He's empowered to do the work of healing. And so it's not just a source, it's a sign. What, what I'm trying to get you and I to see here is that the sonship and the kingship of Jesus is the source of his miracles. We're not going to understand the point of these things unless we get there first. They are the headwaters. They're not just a source, but they are a sign of those things. They are testifying to who he is as a person. So if you only see the miracle and you don't see him, you haven't seen the miracle. And this is what makes them unique. I was um, reminded of a seminary class I had, and it was taught by Professor, New Testament scholar Dan Doriani. In fact, he was with us a couple years ago. He preached here, and he taught uh, a Sunday school class for us, or whatever we call those things. Um, and I remember, now Dan is one of the most pragmatic, practical people I know. And so we come to the section of miracles. He's teaching through the Gospels. And he begins to recount a story where God used him to heal a man. He said, um, I was with the elders. A man came to us who had a life-threatening heart. He was diagnosed with a life-threatening heart condition. It was plain. His days were numbered. 
And he came to the elders and said, will you pray for me? And we prayed for him, and he said, I began to pray for him, and it felt like my arms were on fire. Never happened before. I felt like I could lift him off the floor. And he said, at that moment, I knew he was healed, but I was too embarrassed to tell the elders because we're Presbyterian. Right? You get in trouble. You get brought up on charges for something like that. So he just kept quiet. Well, a couple days later, the man came in and said, I've been to the doctor. I'm completely healed. It's gone. And a couple other times, women had come to him where they were barren, and he prayed for them. And lo and behold, they became pregnant immediately. But this is what caught my attention, because it would be very easy at that point. And he would say, this doesn't happen all the time, and I'm not a miracle maker. But he'd say, there is a distinction. There are what we would call small m miracles, lowercase miracles. He said, that's what God did through the elders and myself. But then there are capital M miracles. And these are miracles that testify to who Jesus is and why he came and the works he's doing. And he said, those miracles are unique to Jesus and his apostles who he empowered because they were testifying at a time where we didn't have the Scripture complete, letting the world know who He is. And you find this consistent throughout Jesus. You, you know, Jesus doesn't just heal a blind person or raise a dead person. He heals a blind person. He says, I am the light of the world. He heals a dead person, and He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. In the Gospels, you follow this out, and you see it in our passage here. In chapter 4 and chapter 9, it says that Jesus was teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease. Did you see how it's framed? He's teaching. He's proclaiming who he is. And then the miracles follow after that. In chapter 9, I would say it's even clearer when he says he goes into this idea of a harvest, a harvest of souls. That's how it's always functioned. And here's the thing, the very sad thing. Many, many, many people came to him, and they left with miracles, but they didn't leave with the miracle man. They left with the healing, but they didn't leave with the son. And I guess I would ask you a question. I've been thinking about it myself. Have you ever longed for a miracle more than you have for the Lord himself? ever longed for a miracle more than you have for the Lord Himself. Because that would be the equivalent of you and I being the crowd who comes forward and says, do this thing for me. But the relationship, eh, I don't really need that. Imagine that you've been diagnosed with a terminal illness. And there's a choice given to you. You can be miraculously healed, but the cost is you can no longer have a relationship with your son or daughter, niece or nephew, husband or wife. So you can have the healing, but you can't have the relationship. Well, I would think most of us that are committed to our relationships would say, I'd rather keep the relationship and give my life away. This is the emphasis we have to think about. The miracles were a much lower order. Jesus was gunning for the relationship. Some people had it. Some people didn't get it. And it's, I would say, unfortunate and sad. There are some traditions within the church where there is so much focus in the ministry on the healing 
and on the miraculous thing and not a whole lot about knowing the Father and the Son. Because that's the point of it. But it's not only sonship, it's salvation. Chapter 9 starts with the same way. The village is teaching, proclaiming, and healing all who came. And then it says, And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Now, this is an allusion to that first passage we have read, the Old Testament passage out of Ezekiel, where God's talking about the religious leaders of Israel and saying that they actually are predators. They are preying upon the sheep. They are not only neglecting the the flock, the sheep of Israel, but they're actually exploiting them. You know, we've been following these heart-wrenching stories about the trial of Larry Nasser, someone that was supposed to be a shepherd, a doctor of these young women on the Olympic team, and he was a predator. This is what the religious leaders, in a sense, were doing. And God is very upset about it. In fact, the word harassed that Jesus used, me, uh, used literally means flayed, to be torn, you know, to, be, to find yourself mangled. And then he uses the word helpless, which literally means thrown down. He sees the people as if they are sheep that are torn and mangled and thrown down by their leaders and just lying there in that condition. Now, when the Lord responds in Ezekiel, this is what he says, and I hope you caught it. There's a big emphasis on the word I. They weren't doing their job, but he says I. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Now, he's not talking about David who was on the throne because David had died by then. It's looking ahead to Jesus Christ, the son of David, saying, he will be that shepherd. He will be the one that cares for my people. But he just won't physically heal them. He'll heal them in the deepest, most profound way. He fulfills that prophecy I don't know how you feel when you see crowds. You know, I'm sort of mixed on that big crowd. Uh, I I tend to be a um, a pretty big Beatles fan, so I've watched my fair share of documentaries. And it's interesting to have them talk about Beatlemania. You know, that was the time where just hordes of people were, you know, they couldn't even get in their car. They're rocking their limousines. And they'll tell you, yeah, it was fun for a little bit, but then it began to drive them nuts. They couldn't go out of the hotel room. They went from concert stage to car to hotel room. And any time they went out of the hotel room, they just were mobbed. And then when they went on stage, it was so loud they couldn't even hear themselves make the music they were making. I mean, if you think Beatlemania was bad, Jesus mania was a lot worse. I mean, Jesus is healing. Everywhere he goes, there are crowds and crowds of people following him. I mean, you can imagine if there was someone like that in Washington, D.C., five million people would be coming forward. We all have something we want healed. Day and night, he is just constantly doing it. And so this crowd, he looks upon it and he goes, I'm tired of you. No, he doesn't. It says he has compassion. He has pity. He has sorrow. You know, Don't ever believe that God greets your coming to Him with a sigh. 
He's never tired to have you come to Him with your broken heart or your broken body. He has compassion on you. I think we have difficulty believing that. That God has compassion on us. I think we, you know, maybe we come from a family place where it's, you know, stop whining. Or maybe we come from a place where we just think, you know, I'm sort of, I kind of caused this problem. He has compassion on us. But it's not only compassion, it's the, the compassion of salvation, it's also the fullness of salvation. He's not just healing eyes and feet, but souls and conscience, consciences. And here we got to see a connection, an interesting connection between illness and disease and sin. You see this both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. This comes from Isaiah 53, famous chapter that talks about the Messiah and the way that he will come and be a substitute and give his life. It says he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And then Peter goes on to say he himself bore our sins in his body. This was our pardon, by the way. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So you'd be sitting there going, okay, we're talking about sin and righteousness. But then it says, by his wounds you were healed. Do you see that connection? Now what's going on there? Does the Bible say if you're sick and you've got pains, it's because you sinned? No. Jesus clears that up in John 9 with a man that's born blind. Sometimes we can go to that place. And it could be that you have illnesses or something that, you know, okay, my behavior played into it. But that's not what it's primarily saying. It's also not saying it's God's will in this life, just like all your sin really can be taken away in this life, all your pains and sickness will be taken away. There are some parts of the church that say it's God's will that you never be sick and that you never suffer, so that's why you need to pray and be healed. And that just goes completely against the Scripture. God isn't pleased with suffering. And one day he'll do away with it. But Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. And Paul says, it has been ordained for you not only to believe, but to suffer. So it can't mean that. What it's saying is this. The fundamental disorder of sin is being symbolically represented by disease and illness. The point is that greater malady is sin, the sin problem. Not my blindness not my sickness, but sin is the greater thing that the great physician had his eyes on. And the physical healings foreshadow the spiritual healing that Jesus would accomplish at the cross when he dies and he raises. That's what he's talking about here. And so I want to ask you the question here, do you see the greater miracle that you're in need of? Are you aware of the greater miracle that you're in need of? Jesus could heal the cancer of your body, but what about the cancer of your soul? Jesus could fill your bank account with lots of money, but you could gain the world and lose your soul. What do you see the greater need for miracle is? And if you have believed and embraced Jesus Christ, I want to ask you, I want to ask you, do you understand that you have experienced a miracle? I think, you know, if I took a poll maybe before the service and asked Christians, have you ever experienced a miracle? A lot of people would be tempted to say, no, I haven't. But think about it. 
If you were in relationship with Jesus Christ, this is what had to happen. You were spiritually dead. You were not alive to God. He made you alive. You were alienated from God. You were cut off. He brought you in. He united himself to you by faith. He washed all your real guilt and sin away. He adopted you into his family and he made promises about glory that one day all the sin and all the sickness and all the bad stuff will go away and you will be completely healed. If you believe that, you have experienced a miracle. There's not a Christian alive that hasn't experienced a miracle. We have to recapture that. We have a small view of salvation. We have a small view of what it took to be in relationship with God. I mean, if you need your foot healed or something else healed, I hope God heals you. But I'll tell you something, that's not the big miracle that I'm praising Him for. And lastly, it's not just the compassion of salvation and the fullness of salvation, it's the generousness of that salvation. If you read in chapter 4, and you read in chapter 9, and if you read in chapter 11, and chapter 12, and chapter 15, you find word one word over and over and over when it comes to the miracles of Jesus. Many, 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 many. What do you think they're trying to say? Jesus was healing many people. He was so generous with his healing. John would say, you know, we're only giving you a portion of the things that he's done that we saw. We can't tell you all. It's just part of a record. And that points to the vastness of God's salvation. You know, one of the words we use, his immeasurable power toward us, the riches of his grace. Oh, the love that God has lavished upon you and I that we should be sons and daughters of the Most High. All those superlatives. It's the vastness of his salvation. The healings we're pointing to. Also the variety. Diseases, chronic pain, seizures, the lame, the mute, those that were spiritually oppressed. You know, you may look at your life and your track record, um, your story, the ways that you've sinned, the things that you have done that you're very ashamed of, and you might ask the question, is there a grace prescription for me? I mean, is there grace that will really take care of this particular thing? And as we see this variety of what Jesus healed, the answer is yes. There's no spiritual malady or sin for which there is not grace and forgiveness. But lastly, it's not just the vastness and the variety, it's the vehicle. He says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, Jesus there is talking to his apostles and that they would continue that work of miracles after he'd gone. Why? We talked about this before. Not just to wow people, so people would go, I've seen that somewhere before, and they would be back to Jesus. They would be back to the king. They were proclaiming the king. But notice here, he says to them, you have to pray earnestly for the future beyond you. That's us. That's who he's praying for there. He says, we need workers for the harvest because I can't do it all myself and you can't do it all yourself. So what does that begin to look like? What does it look like for this church to be a miracle maker church? I think it happens regularly. 
It might be a soul is saved. Someone comes to know Christ. It might be you speak healing words to someone and they are spiritually healed by what you said. It may be some small M miracles that happen. But all of it has to point to sonship and salvation, or we will have missed the point. And so whatever God has done in your life, you know, maybe you would say, I've been a recipient of a miracle before. I would ask you, how has it changed your relationship with Him? You know, I've shared with you before uh, a bit of our story with my wife Meg's chronic illness. And uh, a lot of you are so kind to ask about that. How's Meg doing? And if you have asked me recently, you know, I've said, well, you know, the, the last two years, she's have been feeling better than she has in the last 10 years. Now, how did it happen? Well, I, I don't really know. I can tell you that a lot of people were praying like crazy, but we, we, we literally came to the last medicine for her to try. The last one. Because they hadn't been working. And we took that medicine, and for four or five months, there wasn't a whole lot happening. It wasn't strong coming out of the gate. And somewhere along the way, she started to get better. Now, you might ask me, did she experience a miracle? I don't know. Maybe God will tell me in heaven. But I can tell you this much. What has happened spiritually in terms of salvation and sonship and her life and my life by extension goes far beyond whatever miracle would have occurred. So for the next couple weeks, we're going to work through some miracles. Miracles for the marginalized. Miracles for the powerless. Miracles for loved ones. All these different miracles. But we're going to keep coming back here because that's where Jesus was coming. Let's pray. We thank you so much, Father, for uh, the works of our Savior, his astonishing work, and the work that he continues to do today. Oh, but Lord, open our eyes to see you and the life you gave for our souls and salvation. In Christ's name, amen.